Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. I am super excited this morning, kind of closing out our series, Made Fearfully and Wonderfully. But I'm also super excited that Pastor Brian and Perry will be back next week, and not just because they are free babysitters. Um, I... (laughs) I am genuinely excited for them to be home and to share about their journey. Um, Like Derek said, they did finish up their 500-mile jaunt um, across the Camino, and they will be back this week and then back in the house next Sunday for Anniversary Sunday. And we are just, like, can't wait to hear from them. I saw a picture uh, yesterday of Pastor Brian, who... I have always known to have a deathly fear of snakes with a couple of snakes around his neck. And so he's changed a lot, folks. Just be prepared. But we are going to continue uh, this whole, uh, I guess, past six weeks. We have been looking at Psalm 139 about being fearfully and wonderfully made and that we are wonderful works of God. We've been answering the question, who am I? And so we have answered that with, I am loved, I am content, I am peaceful, I am called, I am a worshiper, I am chosen. And I feel like it's kind of apropos this morning that I chose to speak on family because I titled it, We Are Family. So we're wrapping up kind of all of those I statements and now looking at us as a part of this family, the family of God, this church family and community. I contemplated, as I came up this morning, having uh, Sister Sledge's We Are Family playing but I'm kind of all or nothing. So there, it was like 50-50 either way. We could have gone straight into karaoke for the rest of service, or we might have come back to this. So I stayed, I stayed safe. I refrained from that. But if anybody is up for karaoke after church, hit me up, sister, because I am down, okay? So we can, we can do that after service. But before we dive in, let's pray. Lord, I do thank you that we can come into your house this morning, that we can gather in this community, in this church, knowing that we are family. Lord, I pray that this place this morning would be a place that is healing to our soul. Lord, I pray the words that I speak would be like a healing balm to our spirits, Lord, and that we would hear the things you have to see, to say and show us through Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. So when I was thinking about family, as I was preparing for this, um, I couldn't think but help of my grandparents. I think we have a picture of my grandma and grandpa. There they are. Grandma Dorothy, let me tell you about her. If you wonder where I get glitter and rainbows and sunshine and all of that fabulous from, it is her, okay? She had these glasses. You can't tell in that picture, but they were like crystal sparkly encrusted around the outside. And she wore those things until they broke. I mean, had many, many years, a variety of prescriptions in them. And she wore them until she could no longer get them repaired. She also had a signature red lipstick. Um, It was the same brand, same color she wore for decades, even as she got older and, you know, wouldn't couldn't get around very much, couldn't do any of her other makeup. She had on a nice red lip. So I get all of my fabulousness from Grandma Dorothy. 
Grandpa Bob. Now, Grandpa Bob was six foot two, and he just had a certain presence about him. When he walked in a room, you didn't know if this guy was going to be your best friend or if he was going to put you in your place, you know? So you might look at him on the outside and think he's kind of a grumpy old man. But I always knew him as someone who was kind and warm and tenderhearted and really like a big squishy teddy bear. So Grandpa Bob and Grandma Dorothy, they played a really important part in my family's life. When my parents found out that they were going to have a baby, when my mom was pregnant with me, they told my grandparents. And they were super excited. And at the same time, Grandpa said you're going to raise your kids in church. I've heard this story so many times over the year that I don't know if this next part is legend or reality, but it was kind of insinuated like, you don't have to come. It'd be helpful if you did, but we're taking your kid to church on Sundays. So my parents happily obliged. And when I say that my family grew up in church because of my grandpa, I mean that as my brother and I grew up in church, but my parents did too. My parents were good and decent people, but they became the people they were really supposed to be because grandpa said we were going to grow up in church. It was, I don't know, I don't know how old I was, but it was, you know, years later when I had some awareness of what family meant, I learned that Grandpa Bob was not my mom's biological dad. He was her stepdad. And what that left me with was the understanding that sometimes family are the people that choose you or the people that you choose. I had seen intentional love and care and generosity from this grandpa that had no obligation, in a sense, to my family. But I knew nothing but unconditional love from him. I remember uh, my brother, my, my little brother, which is a joke because he's six foot six, but my little brother would, he'd be talking to people or things like that. And he's always been tall for his age, you know, that kind of situation. And people would ask, where do you get your height from? You're so tall. And he would always say, my grandpa Bob. <laughs> and before I understood that, you know, grandpa Bob and Jimmy didn't share any genes, you know, that's not how it works. Uh, my grandparents would always, you know, kind of chuckle under their breath or my parents would chuckle under their breath. Because to Grandpa Bob, we were as good as his own. And he was happy to claim that Jimmy got his height from him. But maybe, maybe family looks different for, me, for you. We know that family is not a cookie-cutter shape. It's not one specific mold. Nobody else's looks the same as yours. Maybe there are some of us who grew up in a single-parent home. Maybe there are some of you that you say you raised yourself because your parents weren't there. Maybe there are some of you who were adopted or were raised in foster homes. Maybe you grew up in a multi-generational home and your family just sort of helped take care of each other. Maybe you are one of the many families that has experienced infant loss or child loss. And so your reality of family looks different than your expectations. Maybe there is some place altogether different that you identify with as home and with family and people that chose you and people that love you. 
But however family comes to us, it is a miracle and it is a gift. Today, I want us to look at a specific story about Jesus performing a miracle and giving the gift of family. It's in Luke 8, 42 through 48. It's the story of the woman with the issue of blood. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This woman's condition was insufferable. Our imagination can lead us to think what life must have been like for her. The laws of Israel at that time were very strict ones on people who were sick. They were the same ones we find in Leviticus, and it's a tall order. It is rough, folks. Sick people were to be avoided. They weren't allowed to be a part of the community. Twelve years of physical pain and suffering were made even worse by being socially rejected. She would have lived in the bad part of town. She wouldn't have been in some place where we often think of people who are made fearfully and wonderfully. Trying to find a cure, she spent everything she had on seeing doctor after doctor, and there was no healing. But she had one last hope, and that was Jesus. She made her way through the crowd. She just wanted to slip in unnoticed and unnamed and then slip out. I think this is probably because where she often would be if she was noticed or named, it probably wasn't very kind. It probably wasn't very loving. Maybe she knew that she would be in trouble, that she would face some sort of rebuke. If someone found out that it was her there and touching Jesus. But Jesus stops. He says, wait a minute, who touched me? I think this is where the disciples' eye roll game would be very strong. Like, excuse me, Jesus. What do you mean someone touched you? They're in a very dense crowd of people. Everyone's touching him on all sides. And Jesus says, hang on a minute, somebody touched me. I can imagine if I were Peter, I would be like, oh my gosh, Jesus. I would think Jesus was being like sarcastic and funny, you know what I mean? But then he was really insistent, like, no, 
Who touched me? I want to know. Because somebody touched me and they were expecting something and they received healing. So finally, Peter says, okay, Jesus, listen, there's a lot of people around here. I'm not sure who touched you. Can we just like keep moving, move on with this situation? But Jesus won't stop. Jesus makes space for this woman to tell her story. He makes space for her to be known and then eventually named. She tells her whole story. The stories within her story that tell about the pain and the shame of going to doctor after doctor and never feeling any better and never getting any better. The stories of being thrown out of places one after another because she couldn't live there, because she was sick. I wondered why Jesus was so insistent, why it came to the point that she just couldn't slip back, she couldn't slip away, and that Jesus makes space for her to tell her story. I don't think it's because Jesus didn't know her story. He wasn't unaware of who she was. I also don't think it was for Jesus to embarrass her. He didn't want to say, look at this woman, she touched me. I think it was because he wanted her to know that she was seen. Noemi Vega Quiones, who's the co-author of the book Hermanas, which I recommend you read. It's a book written by three Latina women who it's basically intended to speak to a Latina audience about the gospel and Jesus, and she breaks down these stories individually. She says that Jesus wanted to ensure that her healing would be both physical and social, both systemic and personal. He wanted to say to her, you are healed, yes, in your body. You are healed also in this community. You won't any longer be cast out. You won't any longer be rejected on the outskirts, on the fringe of society. But you are home in this place. Wanted it to be systemic and personal. To say, daughter, you're a part of the family. And to say to anyone else in the crowd there that you're a part of the family as well. Seeing exactly for who she was and all she had experienced. And then instead of him coming to her and saying, woman, you know the law. You're not supposed to be here. You're not supposed to touch anyone. He turns and he says, daughter. Everyone knew her story, and he still called her daughter. She was still a child of God and still a part of the family. The wonderful poet Maya Angelou, in a conversation, she wasn't even being the most fabulous Maya Angelou. She was just talking in an interview. She said, to be loved is wonderful. To be understood is profound. And I think what we see from Jesus in this scripture, he takes it a step further, and he says, to be called family is life-changing. So what does this mean for you? 
Because this is a very much one-sided conversation this morning. (laughs) Ideally, I'd sit down with you and we'd get to have coffee or your favorite drink. Most people are 80% water. I'm 80% coffee, so I would have coffee. And we would sit down and we would talk about what family means to you. Family you've experienced in all of its uniqueness the lovely parts, the things that make you smile, and if you felt comfortable, the things that have been painful or sad. Your story about family is important. And while I can say that the best and most wonderful parts of my life typically have roots and foundation in family and church family, I can also say that there are parts that I've felt disappointment and I've experienced pain or simply just feeling like I don't belong. So it may be a lot for you to envision family with a positive connotation. But whatever your past or whatever your present and however you found yourself here today, You are invited, and you are enthusiastically welcomed into this space and family. The message version, the last verse of that passage, Jesus said, Daughter, you took a risk trusting me, and now you're healed and whole. I think as much as we can experience hurt being part of a family, part of a community, because there's part of us that has to become vulnerable to really connect, to have real, authentic relationships and friendships. While there's part of us that can be hurt, there's also real healing, real friendship, real family that can be found in this place as well. I believe that you are chosen like Pastor Derek spoke on last week, that you are chosen intentionally and with a purpose and for a purpose. I believe that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God, and I believe that we are all family. So what do we do next? A couple of weeks ago, I spent six hours in a sunflower field for work. And there was some downtime, so the sunflower farmer came over and chatted it up with me. I was unaware of how unaware I was about farming sunflowers, but he educated me, so I appreciate that. He told me that, yes, sunflowers do follow the sun, but... If the sun goes behind a cloud or it's darker out and the sunflowers can't find the sun, they turn to face each other. And that blew my mind because that is what being part of the family of God is. When we can't seem to find the sun, we can look to each other. When it seems like it's dark in our own lives, We can hold the place of the sun for our friends and family. There's a theory inside the Jesuit faith 
that talks about loving well and loving like Jesus just means that you're willing to be bothered by what bothers other people. It means that you're willing to notice what troubles and trials and weight and pain others take on, and you're willing to sit and work through that with them. Our job is to descend into the details and particulars of others' lives because if we don't, all we can offer as consolation are cliches. So let us be those who are bothered by other people's problems. Let's be that friend that sticks closer than a brother. Let's make space for people to share their whole story and to still call them family. Let's reshape the world by acting in love and knowing that we are all made fearfully and wonderfully and therefore all siblings. You are a child in whom the Lord delights. And so is the person next to you and in front of you and behind you and halfway across the world from you. As we think about coming to the table this morning and being a part of this community this morning, I want to think about who Jesus made space for at the table. Specifically, the Last Supper, Jesus sat there and he said, this is my body broken for you. He said, this is my blood shed for you. And he made space at the table for Thomas. Thomas, the disciple who after Jesus is raised for the dead, doubts the reports that he's hearing, doubts what people are saying. Jesus made space for him. Peter is found at the table. Peter, who was so passionate and adamant that he would not deny Jesus. He ends up denying Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. There was even space made at the table for Judas, who totally turns his back on Jesus, who totally sells Jesus out. So as we come to the table this morning, we can come with our doubts like Thomas. And we can come when we feel like we've denied Jesus in our lives, in in parts of our lives, in our whole lives. And we can come when we feel like we've totally turned our back on Jesus. When we've sold our life out to everything but Jesus, we can come. Hopefully that's a reminder to be gracious and kind to those who may be coming in that place this morning or gracious and kind to ourselves if we're coming from that place this morning. We always want grace and mercy for our own nuances. Let's remember to be generous and kind and gracious towards others. I also think about the love of God that people get nervous When you say everyone is invited or everyone is welcome in this family, 
we get nervous because we're afraid that there's going to be less for us. We think that there's just this certain amount of love and affection and care from the Father that can be doled out and parceled out to us. And so we'll have less if everybody gets to participate. But it's actually like the miracle of the five loaves and the two fish. That when Jesus was brought this simple kid's lunch, he made it feed a multitude. And not just feed a multitude, but there were leftovers. There was an abundance. There was more than enough. And that's what I see when we gather together and we welcome everyone to the family. Is that God's love is made abundant. It's multiplied through us and in us and around us. So that there's leftovers. We don't have to be worried that there won't be enough. Amen. Go ahead and stand with me this morning. We're going to say a confession and then we will come to the table. And everyone is welcome at the table. With our doubts. With our denials. With our turning our back on Jesus.